So first things first, how you read this moment in the Bible, a story that many of you I know have heard many, many times, what you get out of it is going to depend an awful lot on who you are. And more particularly, it depends on who you want to be. Who would you rather be? King Herod or the Magi? Look, I know, you're smart people. You know that the answer to that is supposed to be the Magi. You get it. But let's not just be smart today. Let's be smart and let's be honest. And if we're honest, we have to admit that there are days, there are a lot of days, in fact, maybe more days than there are not, when Herod's life doesn't sound so bad. I mean, especially if you know some things about Herod that the Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us some things about Herod because when Herod was alive, these were the sorts of things that everybody knew. There was no reason to waste precious ink or space on a scroll to write down something so obvious. But if you go on a tour, for instance, of the Holy Land, these things will quickly become obvious to you as well. And one of the most obvious things about Herod is that he lived large. If you go to visit the places that Jesus hung out, all you will find there is a hill and grass. But if you go to visit the wonders of the ancient world in Israel, you'll soon find that all of them were built by Herod. Herod had a really nice life. He didn't just have a mailing address in Jerusalem where the Magi visited him. He also had a gorgeous beach house in Caesarea Maritima. If you go there today, you can still find the ruins of the swimming pool that he had built out into the Mediterranean Sea. He not only had a wonderful beach house, he also had a wonderful camp out in the country, in the wilderness area down near Masada where he could get away and find some peace when city life was bringing him down. And Herod didn't just build great things for himself. No, he was very public-minded. If you go to Israel today, and if you go to the Temple Mount, to the great western wall where people still pray to this day, and all the other massive remains of the temple in Jerusalem, Herod built that. If you only know Herod from the Gospels, from the stories Christians tell, then you know him as a villain as the butcher of Bethlehem, the man who misled the Magi. But in his own day and time, there were plenty of people who called him Herod the Builder, or even Herod the Great. There were plenty of Judeans who thanked God every time they remembered Herod, because for 600 years, ever since the Babylonians tore down the first temple and sent so many of their ancestors into exile, they had been waiting for a king as impressive as Herod. The Magi, on the other hand, were no kind of kings at all. They were wise men. They were scholars and royal advisors, and they certainly did all right for themselves, since they could afford an expensive trip and bring Jesus precious treasures but they weren't kings. There's an old mistranslation that confused several generations of Bible readers, and because the We Three Kings is an absolute banger amongst Christmas hymns, well, the, the mistake is still with us. I think also that maybe we like to call them kings 
because we'd like to have it both ways. We'd like to believe that there is no trade-off, that we could be both great and wise. We'd like to think that Herod could have been a magi if he tried a little harder. We'd like to think that the magi were kings because then we could believe that we can have it all. Deep down, we know better. And today, we're being honest, remember? And sometimes, you really have to decide whether to be one or the other. This week, when you made your plans, when you made your New Year's resolutions, tonight when you go to bed and you pray and you dream about what's next, will you dream about being great? Or will you dream of being wise? Be honest. And then hold that thought. I'll come back to it. But first, I want to tell you about the first time I ever saw the stars. I mean, really saw them. Not just a star or some of the stars. I mean, the first time I saw the stars writ large. I thought I had seen the stars for the first 15 years of my life. It's not like I grew up around skyscrapers or bright city lights or anything. I'd spend more weekends than I could count camping in the woods and on hills underneath the night sky, but all of it was down here in Alabama or somewhere nearby. When I was 15, I went on a mission trip to South Dakota. And that's where I was shocked to discover that the sky I had grown up with was like a Christmas tree with only one strand of working lights. There in the Badlands, I looked up and the Milky Way actually looked liquid. So dense with stars, it looked as if it had been poured across the night sky. And if you've ever seen the night sky from a place that is removed by hundreds of miles from modern light pollution, then it is amazing to try and imagine how the wise men even noticed that there was something new in the sky at all. How did they see it out of all the things that were in the heavens? We don't know exactly what they saw. In their day and time, the word star could have referred to any number of things. It could have been a comet, could have been a supernova, the new brightness of a dying star. We know that this would have been about the same time as a rare alignment of Jupiter and Saturn. And without a modern telescope, those two planets would have been so close together that they would have looked like one big bright star. And interestingly enough, even though the Jewish people rejected astrology as a pagan practice, and there are no astrologers in the Old Testament or in the early church, there were still other cultures who associated the planet Saturn with the land of Judea. And Jupiter was associated with royalty. So maybe, just maybe, as N.T. Wright suggests, maybe that's what the Magi saw when they looked up and studied the sky each night, studied it so closely that they could pick out one new discovery from the billions of stars. They saw the confluence of Judea and a king and knew that God was up to something. And don't you know that's got to be some of the reason that the so-called wise men of Jerusalem refused to follow the real wise men who came from a foreign land. You might remember 
Matthew tells us that it was not just Herod who was troubled by the wise men. It was all of Jerusalem. It was the scholars and the advisors in Herod's own court. It was the people who had studied the prophet Isaiah, who knew that they could encounter God in Bethlehem. The same people who should have known best were troubled and resentful, and they stayed behind when the Magi said, this is the moment you've been waiting for. Don't you know those Jerusalem Bible teachers? were embarrassed. They weren't just afraid of missing out on Herod's parties, losing their access to his beach house and his wilderness camp. They were also embarrassed, embarrassed to discover that they knew their Bibles backwards and forwards, and still these foreigners, these astrologers, knew what God was up to before them. The culture shock was just too much for them. It's like finding out that you've memorized every star in the sky only to discover that there are more stars than you ever imagined. And that's why no one can be as great as Herod, as the world defines greatness, and as wise as the Magi, no matter how much we try and fool ourselves. If I'm honest, and I really don't want to be, but if I am, I have to admit that you cannot be wise unless you are willing to risk being embarrassed. To admit that there might be something you don't know, something you don't understand, something you have to learn, or even something you have to let go of. And on this day of epiphany, this day of discovery and realizations, one of the things that we discover is that in Jesus Christ, God chose to give us wisdom before greatness. And to give us that wisdom, even the Almighty God was willing to be embarrassed. He was willing to have his diaper changed. He was willing to be rejected. He was willing to get tired, to need rest, and to let his disciples know when he was tired and needed rest. And eventually he would go so far as to allow himself to be hugged, naked as the day he was born, on a tree for all to see. And years after that, the Apostle Paul had an epiphany that he shared with the church in Philippi when he said, though he was in very nature God, Jesus did not cherish or hold on to that greatness, but instead he made himself humble, make himself a servant, becoming obedient, even unto death. You know, for the first few centuries of the Christian era, Christmas was one of the least celebrated holidays. It wasn't even recognized by most of the Christian church. It was the last one to be adopted officially. No one could agree on when to celebrate it or even whether they should until about the 400s. Historian Tom Holland suggests that Christmas only became important to Christians because of the creeds the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed that we still hold to today. You see, back in the 300s, there were some folks, we call them Gnostics today, who were so embarrassed by the idea that God would have chosen to be weak, that God could have suffered, that God could ever be humbled, that they began to say Jesus had never been human and had never truly died. They said he looked like us and sounded like us, 
but he had never really known our frailty and certainly had not died. Those early Gnostics quoted a lot of Bible verses. They knew a lot of things. They stirred up real trouble, like to the level of revolutions and protests all over the world. And so the church came together to say in their creeds that you don't really know God if you don't know a God who is with us. You don't know your Bible unless you know that Christ is the wisdom of God made flesh in the words of John 1. And you are not wise unless you can get over your culture shock and get over your embarrassment of belonging to a kingdom where the greatest among us is the servant of all. And we continually confess that there is more to know than we know. By now, I hope you know the answer to the most important question for the new year and the new you. Do you want to be Herod or Magi? I hope you want wisdom more than greatness. And if you don't, I am not sure what else I can do to help you. If you call yourself by Christ's name and you do not care that one pursuit is Christ-like and the other is not, then I don't know what to say. You do not care that your wisdom will carry you into the kingdom of heaven while your greatness will be thrown out. Then I don't know what more I can tell you. But if you are humble enough to choose wisdom, if you are honest enough to admit that tomorrow greatness will look awfully tempting, then you can be like the Magi. You can find joy in the things that make proud men tremble. You can see wonders and signs in the same sky where Herod saw only darkness. I'm not saying it's easy. If the stars are hidden from us by light pollution, then wisdom is often hidden by the information pollution of our present age. We have more access to facts and figures than we can comprehend, but there is no guarantee that it's making us any wiser. But in the witness of the wise men, we can find three signs, three that are worth watching. Three lights that can come together and lead us to the mind of Christ. And I'd like to offer three rules for seeking wisdom to you today. First, you can find wisdom through proximity. You can't meet it from far off. The Magi saw the star. They knew it was not enough simply to study it or record it in their journal or to reshare it with their followers. They knew they had to draw near to it. And wisdom requires proximity. Christian author Andy Crouch likes to say, you should give the least power in your life to the people who are farthest away. And he means that literally. Like if someone doesn't live near you, if you aren't close enough to have a sense of how they really live their lives, do not let them set the agenda of your thoughts. And that advice is equally important for the people you like from far off as it is for those you don't. Don't let the influencer you love or the newscaster that you hate or the writer or actor or singer or anyone else loom larger in your mind than your neighbor, your classmate, your family, your brother or sister in Christ. My girls are about to roll their eyes as you get to hear what I remind them often. All celebrity is fiction. That goes for Christian celebrities too. It's not that all celebrity is bad. It's that by definition, you don't know what's real and what's not. What's honest and what's merely superficial. 
Wisdom comes by learning deeply, and so wisdom requires proximity. You can also find wisdom through confession. Wisdom admits what it does not know, even when that's risky. It was risky and it was dangerous for those wise men to walk in the court of King Herod and to say, we know there's a new king on the way to replace you, but we don't know where. That's how desperately the wise men wanted to know Jesus and wanted to know wisdom. They did not let their pride or their own safety keep them from learning what they did not know. When we prize our own greatness, we look up at a sky full of new stars and we say, well, those can't be very important. I've lived my whole life without knowing about them. But if we prize wisdom, we can freely confess, I had no idea it could be like that. Finally, we find wisdom by making sacrifices rather than demanding them. And this is important because not everyone can be trusted with our confessions and with our honesty. There are people and leaders and even neighbors who will take advantage of what we do not know. So when you go looking for wisdom, look for the people who give more than they take. Look for those who offer more than they demand. The wise men offered precious, precious gifts to Jesus, not because he demanded it, but because that's what wisdom does. And in Jesus himself, we see that God has given us more than God could ever demand. It's a funny thing and hard-won wisdom in my own ministry, but it's proven true over and over again in my own life. People who walk around demanding the most respect, demanding the most influence, rarely give it. People who give most generously to the church and to others are almost never the people you think. And they're almost always the least demanding. People who truly live sacrificially with their time and their attention and their patience are the people who know the true cost of that gift. And so they are reluctant to demand it of others, though they will always be happy to show them the way. It's the kind of wisdom we honor today. It's the kind of wisdom that God remembers when all the honors of this world have become ruins. It's the kind of wisdom that leads us all the way to heaven. Proverbs tells us, get wisdom though it costs you everything. But the wisest among us know that it pays back more in joy than we could ever pay. And on this day for celebrating epiphanies, this day in which wise men bowed to greater wisdom, on this day when we celebrate the witnesses that we have so near to us, I believe there is more wisdom in this room than we've ever dared to imagine. And the beginning of wisdom is as simple as an honest answer to this question. Who would you rather be when it's all said and done? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.